This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Shabana Shankar about her new book, An Uneasy Embrace, Africa, India, and the Specter of Race, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Dr. Shankar is currently an associate professor in the history department at Stony Brook University. Dr. Shankar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So as you note in your preface, you know, your idea for this project began when you were conducting research for your first book, Who Shall Enter Paradise? Christian Origins in Muslim Northern Nigeria, circa 1890 to 1975, uh, which you know, explored the history of sort of Christian missionaries and conversions in Northern Nigeria. Uh, a region that often gets glossed as entirely Muslim. So, so how did research for that first book kind of bring you to the topic of your new research? So when I was living in Kano in northern Nigeria, I had interacted with Indians and Pakistanis who worked in textiles predominantly in that part of Nigeria, just in social settings or Nigerian friends would say, oh, you should meet these other people who were like you um, here in Nigeria. But what I was really surprised was that there were also missionaries from South Asia in Nigeria. Uh, uh, When I went to the Equa Eye Hospital in Kano, which is run by uh, a Christian organization, a worker at the hospital said, oh, I have someone you have to meet. Um, And he took me to the head doctor and the doctor's wife, who happened to be Christian Sri Lankan missionaries. So there was that encounter. And then in archival sources, I found uh, an account by an American missionary doctor from 1945 in which he discussed meeting an Indian Muslim missionary who was preaching in the men's ward. He had snuck into the Christian hospital to, to preach Islam. Um, And this really piqued my um, curiosity because Indian missionaries did not fit the usual image of the Indian diaspora in African countries because the Indian diaspora is often seen as either commercial people, as shopkeepers um, in different African locations, or in South Africa as indentured, South Africa or Mauritius as as indentured workers. And therefore, these missionaries fit neither of those those profiles. Interesting. And so that what got me interested. Yep. I was looking at your CV um, and I, I noticed that kind of beyond your career in academia, you've served in kind of various capacities within the United Nations. Um, and so I, I was wondering kind of how that influenced your thinking about topics like globalism, race, the non-aligned movement um, and development you know, sort of all themes and topics that, that do come up quite a bit in this book. So my experience at the United Nations you know, taught me a lot. But one of the things it revealed to me is this tendency 
particularly in um, wealthy global North countries and institutions, international institutions like the UN, is this tendency to see developing countries as local, uh, whereas developed societies are global. Um, And developing countries are either local or caught in some kind of two-way relationship, a perpetual two-way relationship with former colonial powers or the U.S., the West. Um, Yet I knew from studying in Nigeria that Africa is global. uh, And while African visions and versions of world making world making are often less are often sort of seen through a connection to the African diaspora, what Africans think of Asia and Asians or what they think of Latin America and Latin American peoples is far less often the focus. So I became fascinated by the world in Africa and the world looking at the world through through African lenses. All right. Uh, so now we can kind of get into the book. Uh, so how does the title, An Uneasy Embrace, Africa, India, and the Spectre of Race, kind of reflect the key argument or kind of arguments of the book? So it's interesting you ask this because, of course, titles are very hard to come up with and, you know, sort of hard with Africa, India, which part of Africa. Anyway, you could imagine. So uh, the uneasy embrace really does capture this idea in the book that Africans and Asians share an intimate but complicated and shifting relationship. This is a a central theme of the book. And what is shifting, imprecise, and even spectral, right, shadowy and hard to name, are the differences between Africans and South Asians. And of course, here I use the term India, but it includes Indians and Pakistanis. Um, And so they profess a solidarity in some historical moments, Africans and Asians, and yet at other times separate themselves. So I, I came to this, one of the themes in the book is that solidarity is not sameness, um, and the politics of Afro-Asian solidarity and non-alignment, you know, starting from the 1950s, is continually being constructed and deconstructed and challenged and adopted in different, in different periods. And part of this ongoing Afro-Indian mediation is race, which I really emphasize isn't always present, but it is often present. And I argue against what many people say, uh, many people's argument that what, that race is a Western concept, right? Imposed on non-Western peoples or through colonization, slavery, global hierarchies. But I argue that Africans and South Asians have been a part of race making and used it at time at moments to bring them together um, and against white supremacy um, or to create a kinship, but also to differentiate themselves. Um, So I say in the book, they are agents, Africans and Indians are agents of race making. They are not only subjects of it. Of course, they were subjects of, have been subjects of race and racialization, but they've also been a part of this global process of racialization. So one of your contributions um, with this book is that it kind of broadens the established scholarly focus of sort of India-Africa relations, which, you know, historically has concentrated largely on countries that border the Indian Ocean, you know, for sort of obvious reasons, uh, from sort of Somalia on down to South Africa. Whereas you make a kind of compelling case that India has long been connected to kind of West Africa and the kind of the larger uh, Black Atlantic, you know, first through sort of cultural and intellectual output, 
uh, and that sort of efforts to sort of begin and maintain these connections have gone in kind of both directions. Um, so how does this sort of mutual curiosity and influence successfully begin? And what are sort of the early attempts that end up failing a bit? Uh, so I started the book talking about this distinctive cultural economy that grew between West Africa and India, obviously these very far-flung places, uh, but that didn't really even need large numbers of diasporic peoples between the regions, but rather this economy that grew um, through texts uh, and religious images that were circulating and which created the basis for mutual interests and influences. Uh, the, this economy involved Hindu pictures that were sought after in Kumasi and Gold Coast, for example, in the early 1900s, as well as um, other examples are Muslim newspapers that allowed readers in West Africa and British India to connect their story, stories as part of a wider network. So um, this, this, these, this flow of goods um, actually created this uh, relationship before a large number of people were moving between the regions. By the 1920s, this economy had constructed a sense of kinship between Africans and Muslims in India in particular. So I focus on the Ahmadiyya, which was a minority sect um, uh, among Muslims in India. And this kinship between Africans and Muslims uh, was um, forged in this idea of, of oppression. Um, what's fascinating is that this connection prefigured the Afro-Asian solidarity that Jawaharlal Nehru and the new Indian government in 1947 tried to foster with Kwame Nkrumah, Namdi Azikwe, and other West African leaders, which is the story that's more familiar that we know about. So 1940, the 1940s and 50s are not the starting point, but in my book, sort of more like a midpoint that builds on this cultural economy. And in fact, the if you put in that sort of historical frame, frame we see that the independence era seemed to bring failure, or at least more tension and more suspicion uh, to African-Indian relations than had actually existed before um, during the colonial period. Um, Africans questioned whether Indians really accepted them as equals um, during the era of nationalism and independence. Um, there was also uh, fears about um, the Indian, the size, the growing size of the Indian diaspora in in. Um, different African countries. Um, so I, I examined how this questioning didn't necessarily happen in formal political spheres. So it wasn't necessarily a challenge, say, between Nehru and Nkrumah, but rather in other kinds of spaces, such as movie theaters that had been segregated, schools and universities. Your next chapter kind of starts by exploring growing resentments across different Indian diasporas uh, throughout the African continent. Uh, and while you don't deny that kind of economics had a role here, your focus is sort of more instances of sort of cultural or social exclusion. So I suppose this question is kind of twofold. So first, what are some examples that you found uh, of such exclusion and kind of why do you feel it's important to include, to include these in addition to instances of economic exclusion? So I, I found some instances such as um, Africa growing resentment around segregation in movie theaters um, that uh, other African scholars have talked about in places like Tanzania, but also existed in other parts of the continent. 
Um, but also this wider sense that Africans had that Indians kept their cultural and leisure activities like cinema going, music and religious festivals in a very, to, in a very um, possessive or sort of protectionist way that this was not part of public culture, but rather the culture of this, this insular kind of diaspora. Um, and what's interesting is this is echoed on the African continent, but also in the um, experiences of African soldiers who served with the British Army in India and Burma during World War II, who also wrote about um, this sense of wanting to know more, but not often having the access to uh, Indian spaces while they were in living in India, although there were some soldiers who also did end up having more interaction with Indians, uh, soldiers, but also their families. And so they, they therefore, they felt more, um, include, you know, integrated into society. Um, and I think it's, to answer the second question, it's important to recognize this cultural tension. I mean, economic tension is often the main paradigm through which African-Indian relations are kind of understood, tensions, say, in Kenya or South Africa. But cultural tension, to, recognizing cultural tensions also acknowledges the different kinds of boundary making um, that occur in inter- interracial entanglements. Um, so I also, you know, try to address these other kinds of intimacies, cultural intimacy or cultural um, understanding and knowledge that that groups of people want, because I argue it is narrow to assume that interracial intimacy is simply defined in terms of sex, which a lot of research also kind of reaffirms this, um, you know, this idea of boundary making and sexual intimacy. And so I argue that daily practices of living together, uh, which at the beginning of the book, I talk about um, Jomo Kenyatta's experience, for example, um, uh, um, it's you know with Indians, or actually in the beginning of the book, I talk about um, Ingugi, um, but but this idea that living together is what breaks down um, um, cultural racial barriers, um, not um, not uh, you know kind of only in political formal spheres. I was particularly interested in your discussion here, too, about sort of how post-independence Indian politics and the partition influenced African-Indian relations. And, you know, it's partially perhaps because I'm interested also in sort of how in Nigeria there were kind of fears that kind of what happened in India might happen in Nigeria as sort of independence approach. But in any case, kind of how does this history um, complicate kind of Indian outreach efforts in Africa. I, I was really fascinated by um, the the sophistication and diversity of African understanding of Indian politics as it was unfolding during the during the era of you know nationalist struggles and uh, partition, um, because there were a lot of. Um, uh, concerns that in Nigeria or in Gold Coast that um, leaders and polit- you know polit- political leaders were having that were related to, for example, religious um, differences and the accommodation within one country of religious diversity, which of course was very relevant for you know a colony like Nigeria. So I was really interested to see that India was not only understood through the lens of Gandhi and um, nonviolent resistance and, and mobilization of the masses, but rather, you know, caste, gender discrimination, a number of uh, poverty, 
which was also a common refrain that I would even hear in doing my research is, you know, um, what I what many Africans would say who say who had traveled to India um, or even known through um, media, you know, they would say, I, I it, there seems to be so much poverty um, in India. And it was almost a contrast with their own societies, because they felt India had more poverty. And indeed, you know, it does in some ways. So um, this, this uh, very, um, you know, India was good to think with politically for for Africans um, in their own um, political um uh, moments, but also cultural and social um, circumstances and economic circumstances. So an overarching concern of mine in the book is to get at the idea that there is no single India or singular Indian, one type of Indian in Africa, but rather very plural understanding, um, because the tendency has been to um, treat Indian perspectives on India and Indians as rather homogenous. Um, and often through the frame of a figure like Gandhi. The third chapter of your book takes a really kind of deep, interesting dive into Leopold Senor, the first uh, president of independent Senegal, and his efforts at building African-Indian ties, uh, both in terms of creative and intellectual production. Since I imagine many listeners will be sort of unaware of this, uh, can you start by sort of sketching out this work by Senor and kind of how did he become so invested in it? Kind of what was at stake for him? So this was also some a part of the book that I really enjoyed researching and and writing um, because it really also bro- breaks down this divide that India fr- that that British empire was the framing reference for Mm. African-Indian relationships. So in 1974, Leopold Senghor uh, uh, traveled to India to announce the establishment of a Department of Indo-African Studies at Dakar University, which is today Sheikh Ganchajiop University, and at Anomaly University near Puducherry, the former capital of French India. Um, and this idea was supported um, by the Prime Minister Indira Gandhi and got support from the Indian government as well. Um, and Senghor's project um, was, I think, as I'll describe it, was really guaranteed, was really geared towards looking at the cultural affinities, histories, um, uh, nexus between West Africa and South India. South India defined as Dravidian or non-Aryan India, which I'll come back to. Um, but the, my main argument in talking and describing this, this project was that Sangor was tackling African-Indian tensions using race as a strategy of reconciliation with India and Indians. And this is one of those moments in the book where racial similitude or racial um, um, embrace becomes um, really the mode of using um, of race. So he brings India into his vision of negritude, which he defined as a cultural and intellectual movement to recognize blackness as an iconic civilizational paradigm. Um, and so where did Senghor's ideas come from? He had been thinking about Afri- Africa-India connections since from the time that he was in France um, studying and also when he served as a, a soldier. Um, and he had studied linguistics under the direction of a linguist uh, named Lilius Homberger, 
who was a scholar of historical linguistics. And she was, uh, she was interested in her, her research was interested in finding the origins of the pool or the Fulani or the full bay, which of course was a very uh, preoccupying problem for European um, anthropologists and linguists because they believed that you the, the pool were set, were a distinctive African race. Um, and she described, she believed that there was a Dravidian Indian, Dravidian Indian pool connection. And she also described the Dravidians as the makers of the, the Indian civilization, um, the ancient Indian civilization that is recognized in world history and that the Aryans were the ones who came and um, destroyed this civilization. Um, so, uh, she, of course, full, full bay or pool had been classified as Hamido Semitic, um, during this time by, um, linguists. And so, uh, in other words, you know, a lot of these categories that we're talking about, Dravidian, Aryan, Hamidic, Semitic are linguistic categories, but of course, ones that had taken on these racial meanings. Um, and, if we look at the timing of this from the 1930s, the 20s and the 30s, this is no um, not accidental that um, the position of Senghor and his mentor in relation to Dravidian African studies or pole studies was anti-Aryan, um, you know, an anti-Aryan that was defined not simply by German Aryanism, um, but also that Indians who had claimed higher racial um, uh, civilization as compared to other Indians from the Dravidian South or as compared to Africans that, that they were racially superior claimed also claimed Aryan routes uh, roots. So this was a uh, this this Afro Dravidian project because it could even it was even more specific. All the publications that came out of it was focused on Dravidianism. Um, was really a very um, uh, a, a very a very um, s- scholarly kind of a, you know sort of a scholarly project, but one that was also politically very um, uh, significant because it came at a moment when there were um, a lot of tensions between African countries and um, India and. Leopold Senghor in creating this department designed to study these subjects of ancient history was really trying to come at some mode of reconciliation that was quite unique. Mm -hmm. Which sort of, yeah, leads me to my my next question, which is, yeah, of course, as you do detail in the book, you know, not only did Senghor himself kind of have um, prominent critics uh, but also sort of at the same time of his efforts to facilitate these collaborations between Indians and Africans, there was, you know, as you alluded to, sort of increasing tensions that implicated Indian diasporas uh, within Africa, sort of most notably the expulsion of South Asians from Uganda by Idi Amin uh, in 1972. So I'm wondering kind of how do you make sense of these seemingly contradictory approaches? Well, it's this is what makes looking at um, topics or you know politics such as Afrocentrism um, or uh, quite interesting because there aren't just one strand. There isn't just one strand of thought within it. Um, both Idi Amin and 
Senghor could be described as Afrocentrists in their own way. Of course, some people would critique Senghor's position, but obviously other people would also critique Idi Amin's position. So um, the, I, I, I think that, um, I mean, obviously the two leaders had come from very different um, historical backgrounds and orientations and also experiences of um, others within their society um, uh, and and the way they they built nationalism or internationalism was quite distinct in other ways also if you think about negotiations say with the Arab world um, that both Amin and Senghor were also involved in um, but I think that if you take a wider continental approach, um, there was a there was a general silence on the African continent about Idi Amin's expulsion, and yet, and also a a uh, fear that had continued since then after 1947 that the Indian population's movements on the African continent would have different and negative consequences for African communities with the diaspora increasing in size, but also um, occupying positions of greater wealth or or access. And so um, Senghor's project really does also um, expand, for example, um, intellectual exchanges, university exchanges, which really, um, I also talk about in the book, was a very central uh, issue for a lot of African countries in their negotiations with India during this period, because on the one hand, there were more African students who were going to India and other parts of Asia for education. And on the other hand, there were also a lot of Indians, you know, coming to the African continent, either to work or also in some cases study in African universities. And so, um, I would argue that Senghor's approach was, was, humanistic, um, geared towards the kind of intellectual, artistic, cultural realm, which was sort of his hallmark. Um, And it's just uh, fascinating that I also talk about in the book how there were South Indians who who were convinced by and accepted negritude in a way that even, you know, in the West, it wasn't in the same way. And even within, you know, among some Africans, it wasn't. And so it's a, it's another, it's an illustration of how, um, um, uh, black politics is global politics. Um, and Asians also became immersed in black politics. The next chapter touches on how in the period of the Cold War, there were efforts to bring together scientists from South Asia and Africa, which interestingly um, connects to the deeper history of the Ahmadiyya in West Africa, which I was surprised by. I didn't know that part of this history. Um, So first, how does Abdus Salam, a a uh, Pakistani and first Muslim to receive the Nobel Prize in physics. How does he kind of end up intersecting with various Pan-Africanist uh, scientific collectives? This was also one of those moments in doing research that was so surprising to me also. Um, so Abdus Salam's uncle um, was an Ahmadiyya missionary, a longtime Ahmadiyya missionary in Gold Coast in Nigeria. Um, and uh, and the Ahmadiyya in, in India and then later Pakistan were fairly prominent. And so, um, you know, it's not surprising that his, uh, that they're these 
his uncle who had been active in the 20s, 30s, and 40s would have a nephew who would end up going to um, uh, Cambridge and, you know, become a Nobel laureate, you know, study physics. Um, so, but the long association that they, uh, you know, Abdus Salam was a proud Hamidi. Um, and the, so the long association or connection he felt to West Africa, especially meant that when he created the um, International Center for Theoretical Physics in Trieste, Italy, which was cre- created in 1964, um, many West African scientists, especially Ghanaians and Nigerians, came to the International Center to do research and interact with, you know, with Abdusalam and other scholars. Um, and these scientists developed strong links with African-American scientists, m- most of whom taught at HBCUs. Um, and so the idea of Pan-African science uh, developed in these networks, not that it wasn't hadn't existed before, uh, but it became really solidified, I guess. The center offered a kind of um, uh, space for the creation of an uh, institute um, uh, for um, uh, Pan-African science, the Edward Boucher Institute. Um, and it p- produced this, in fact, as I interviewed um, so as a, a um, scientist at um, an HBCU who had been a part of this, um, a lot of African scholars, scientists also came to the United States and spent time um, here at HBCUs. Um, and so Abdus Salam had his own project that increasingly became much more about Islamic science and Islamic knowledge, whereas the Pan-African scientists uh, sort of went a parallel, uh, but not entirely different direction in which um, indigenous knowledge or non-Western knowledge becomes a, a significant priority. Um, and in fact, I, I, I sort of also make the point that um, in some ways he is exiled uh, from Pakistan as an as a um, uh, as a Hamidi, um, and is sort of in perpetual diaspora, perpetual exile. Um, and and so you have this case where South, you know, South Asian. There's the sense of a South Asian diaspora that's sort of informed by, inspired by the African diaspora scientists, but they also are um, operating in their parallel spheres where they actually don't agree with each other. And I think that this is a point in the book where um, the uh, collaboration produces a more um, distinctive sense of self and a distinctive um, boundary making between what is um, uh, the identity that we claim versus the identity that that you're claiming. But in effect, both of their projects, the Pan-African science and Islamic science, does attempt to decenter European dominance in science. And that kind of leads into my next question, which is, you know, sort of what were some of the kind of concrete results of these differences, both in terms of the ICTP and Salam's own views? Um, I think, uh, you know, I think certainly there was at least one, um, a a prominent Nigerian um, uh, UNESCO figure who really believed that um, the direction that Abdus Salam wanted African scientists to go was not good enough. Well, it's not good enough for African scientists. And in fact, African science needed to be more applied science to specific areas like agriculture or, um, or uh, water, um, uh, you know, understanding of water. 
management. And so um, there was this real tension over applied versus theoretical uh, uh, physics or uh, other science branches, which came up over and over again. Um, there was also, um, I think, this it, one one of the productive aspects of this relationship was that the um, the efflorescence of the movement for indigenous knowledge, indigenous um, scientific knowledge, ethnobotany, other fields, uh, really was. Um, became a priority in a lot of African universities. Uh, if you look at Ibadan and other universities, this this um, um, departments uh, engaged with you know preservation of and discovery of more indigenous knowledge sources, indigenous science sources. Um, that really did um, was another theme that came across very strongly in the sources from this period. That that was. Um, uh, a not simply a um, a political response to the desire of Africanization in the post in the independence period, but it was actually practically um, established in specific realms of education and international research. Your next chapter kind of returns to the topic of religion sort of being centered, um, though this time you're investigating the spread of Hinduism in West Africa as well as the African diaspora. So what are some of the different paths that allowed Hinduism to reach the Black Atlantic? Um, so one path was definitely already forged in the early 1900s with the um, cultural economy, the circulation of images, uh, uh, Another was the presence and experiences of African soldiers who served in World War II in India and Burma, who I already mentioned. Um, and then, this is chronologically, um, sometime after that, in the 50s, uh, in the 1950s, the Indian government begins to actually try to sponsor cultural programs and sending Hindu uh, swamis to different African countries to kind of give lectures and promote this idea of Hinduism being a um, a tolerant way of life. Um, and of course, this was not entirely um, independent of the fact that there was a lot of religious conflict going on on the you know in South Asia that Africans, as I mentioned, had were pointing to and asking Indian Indians about this relationship between Hindus and Muslims. Um, uh, so those programs also, uh, brought Hindu, uh, lecturers to different places. Um, and then you have another stream coming from African-American, um, diaspora in West Africa, uh, who many, you know, included Hare Krishna's African-American Hare Krishna. So I also talk about how, um, in Nigeria specifically, um, there was a, a prominent African-American Hindu so there are these very diverse strands, actually, and they're sort of percolating, um, and they're incorporated into different um, uh, various activities happening, religious activities happening in West Africa. I would say, well, you know, maybe not as early as the 40s because we haven't uncovered evidence, but definitely some of these soldiers um, returned and told other uh, Ghanaians and Nigerians about Hinduism such that there was interest in for people like uh, uh, Sw- uh, Swami Gananda, the first African, the hin- first Hindu-initiated African monk, 
who, who talks about learning about or wanting to learn more about Hinduism after talking to a soldier who had been in India. So the strands are very diverse, but it solidifies into some more um, identifiable Hindu religious, Hindu inspired African religious movements um, that come about. But, but I think like one parallel between the history of Christianity in Africa is the African agency in spreading Hinduism. It's really not the case that Indians are spreading Hinduism to Africans, but rather that Africans are finding Hinduism attractive for specific reasons and seeking out um, more knowledge about it. And then kind of related to that, kind of how did Black practitioners of Hinduism sort of connect their modern religious practices to a kind of deeper history of connections to South Asia? Well, the interesting, you know, it's almost deeper history. They connect to deeper history period, not necessarily South Asia, because, for example, Swami Gananda, who I mentioned in his writings and his teachings would basically argue that Hinduism was an African traditional religion, that it was already known in African soil and that it's almost like a regrowth of African traditional religion. And there are scholars like um, Albert Waku and um, Abamfo Atiemo who talk about this, but um uh, you know, there's a ten, you know, African Hinduism can be seen as partly a response to um, Christianity, you know, particularly Pentecostal kind of reformism, as well as Islamic uh, Islam's, you know, presence and reformism, and and sort of this protection of African traditional religions as a as a space rather than as a you know as a transplant from india of hinduism to to africa it's also the case that hinduism comes to west africa in some measure from the Amer- from the united states because it's coming from with african americans as well so its trajectory is quite multi-directional or 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 non-directional almost more than it is um, and, and it is deeply historicized, even if it's not deeply, I mean, it is argue, argued to be deeply historical, right? So it's, um, it has, it's um, sort of implanted in African soil through that idea of being African traditional religion. All right. Your, your final chapters then kind of return um, a bit to Leopold Senor, but this time to explore the position of Indian cultural expression within Senegal, uh, particularly through music, dance, film, and fashion. Uh, so first, to kind of orientate us a little bit, when and how did interest in Indian artistic production begin, and how did it become organized within Senegal? Again, this is really an African initiated kind of interest. And it does begin with Indian films and and Dufili, as it's called in Senegal, uh, you know, predating Senghor's whole Afro-Dravidian project, comes, um, you know, arguably in the 1950s. I mean, there's, it's sort of from different reminiscences. It could be the 60s, but in movie theaters that were not Indian owned, like in other parts of the African continent, but um, 
Lebanese owned or Arab owned, um, but Indian films would play. Um, and so this was sort of the beginning of um, uh, obviously the interest in, in Indian films, but culture, music, and it gave rise to social clubs that arose, that grew up in different suburbs, working class areas uh, uh, around cities like Dakar, San Luis. Um, and they were not um, passive spectators of, of film at all, but in fact, forming dance troupes and um, music, uh, singing, watching together. Um, and they actually become like, it became like kin networks, um, uh, as I discovered through watching this on cut um, film that a Senegalese filmmaker made a documentary about Andoufili, um, where uh, people who grew up together in these clubs married each other, named their children after Indian actors and actresses, and sort of created these very, very tight-knit communities and passed on this kind of art of, of you know, performance. Um, and what's interesting is there comes along... Um, some different figures who are active in media, radio and television, who end up really kind of, if I can use the word commercializing or mediatizing these, this social practice, by who, one of them started a um, beauty pageant <laughs> that was about, you know, that was taught with, was based on a very popular movie and um, different competitors were acting like the main female character and who could do it better. So this was the basis of the beauty pageant. So th this is the, um, it's a very interesting history, fascinating history of um, this, this entirely Senegalese creation, social practice. So India, so basically Indian, cu Indian culture becomes the Senegalese social practice um, through these, through these clubs. However, you know, as, as the title of the chapter, Negritude Beats Bollywood, sort of suggests, um, and here I'm paraphrasing you a bit, uh, you know, a critical spirit has made Pan-Africanism survive, whereas the significance of Bollywood in West Africa has diminished because Black cultural autonomy and critique grew stronger in India's shadow. So how do you kind of understand the diminishing power of Bollywood and, and sort of how has this response by West African audiences influenced Indians themselves? So I think one of the interesting things about the, you know, a lot of Africanist scholars were for a while fascinated by the African, particularly African women's love for Bollywood films. But in fact, it, you know, anthropologists and, and film studies um, scholars have now tracked how this lessening interest in Bollywood is really a, is also related to a critique of Bollywood's changing aesthetics and storylines and content and and production, which has become far more westernized. Um, but and 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 I talk about in the book that this is not you know, this is down to the level of specific details, right? So how uh, particular care, how characters look, how actors look, um, tied with the practices like skin lightening, which is not, you know, which has is heavily critiqued in West Africa, and in fact, has influenced Indian women, to, um, you know, after um, the Black Lives Matter protests grew far larger and far more global, um, 
you know, in India, Black Lives Matter was also expressed in the rejection of skin lightening, which had never happened before in India. And that was directly through social media networks between African and Asian women. So Bollywood's declining, you know, waning popularities in, in part because of an of a changing African taste for um, uh, as well as the changing aesthetics of Bollywood. But 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 also it's interesting because the um, the uh, the the African critics almost perceive um, Indian film is far more um, enslaved by the West than African film is. And so Nollywood may be preferred by many viewers. And so um, I, I, the, the, I try to talk about the critique as having broader implications than simply just about, um, you know, changing tastes, right? That it's just simply, but it does have a, um, a particular um, uh, connection to um, the ways in which uh, West Africans perceive um, Indian inattention or disinterest even in the um, cultural legacy of their own films, right? Of the, of the, of the past films of sort of the, 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 the golden age of Bollywood has now passed. Hmm. So as I think will probably be clear, you know, your book is by and large based on historical research that you've done. Um, but you're also clearly really influenced by anthropology and your book frequently comments on both the very recent past as well as the present. Um, so sort of what do you see as the importance of this history to present day politics? And you've already kind of mentioned a couple of examples, but um, or another way of putting it is kind of how has this sort of history informed how we could kind of, we should sort of understand kind of more recent events. And here I'm also kind of thinking you discussed sort of Gandhi must fall um, mm-hmm. as well in Ghana. Well, uh, well, the first point I would make is that um, Afro-Asia is a part of everyday life living in the African societies that I talk about and also in parts of India um, because the African presence in India has grown steadily um, in the last um, decade, two decades, let's say. Um, so, you know, the tendency to treat Afro-Asia as either formal politics or a kind of no- nostalgic moment in decolonization is doesn't recognize the, the very fast-paced uh, everyday life of, of the global South. And the interactions, again, to get back to one of the early points that I made, that everyday life in um, in many parts of the world is very global. Um, and so that's one reason why I felt that as a historian, I um, that the, the cultural, for example, the cultural nexus is very strong although it's changing between the 1920s, you know, in the last hundred years, right? That kind of um, cultural economy has ex- continues to exist. Um, uh, so, so the second point about, I mean, you raised the question of Gandhi must fall, which in 2016 was founded as a movement that included African and 
and Indian activists to challenge the Indian government's placement of a Gandhi statue on the University of Ghana campus. One of the reasons why I think this book sheds light on understanding um, why would Gandhi, the Gandhi statue become this um, uh, site of that protest. One reason I believe that my history helps explain that is that the relationships between Africans and Indians is, you know, Ghanaians and Indians in this case, but also that it became a wider movement is because it is, um, it is cultural politics have long been a part of, of the negotiation. Um, and this is not simply a knee jerk reaction. I mean, there is definitely a recognition that Gandhi's legacy in South Africa, when it, where he lived uh, between 1893 and 1914 was uh, problematic because he was, you know, uh, derogatory and racist towards Africans, um, but had you know changing views as he became more sophisticated in his politics. Um, but but I think it's it's part of just one strand of many Afro-Indian entanglements, and it shouldn't be the only one that is the reference point. Mm-hmm. Which I think the activists themselves, you know, really were uh, that one one of the activists said, you know, why does the Indian government place a Gandhi a statue of Gandhi and not B.R. Ambedkar, who was the Dalit or so-called untouchable leader? And this really, to me, also reveals the intellectual um, engagement that these activists have with decolonial history, which mm-hmm. is, you know, we have a far more sophisticated understanding of Indian politics to get back to a point that I made, then accepting that Gandhi is sort of the stand-in for everything that India represents. And so I think um, you can see this is this movement, Gandhi Must Fall, is one strand of a continuing, you know, kind of patchwork of relationships. A related question here is that, you know, a kind of another common thread throughout is the sort of the varying uses and presentations of this past, as well as the difficulty to present what is a complicated and at times contradictory history. Uh, For example, you note in your conclusion that despite being sort of very thoughtfully designed when a New York public library exhibit called Africans in India was brought to New Delhi in 2014, you note that for some Indian viewers, it sort of reaffirmed their own sense of superiority, while others viewed it as a kind of call to address racism against Africans and marginalized Indians. I noticed that, you know, in 2017, you brought the same exhibit to your university And so I was wondering if you could kind of share what work you did to contextualize this exhibit Um, and sort of also feel free to share if your research on this topic has kind of influenced how you think about the work of public history, Um, since I know you often publish sort of op-eds or blog posts that are kind of geared towards a more non-academic audience. One of the uh, really great um, projects we were able to do around the exhibit when it came to Stony Brook was that I have a graduate student um, who works on um, uh, Indian um, 
shrine, a shrine specifically a Sufi shrine in India, um, she had uh, had also uh, developed a lecture that she took people through the uh, that she gave when she took people through the exhibit on um, the African spaces in India. So uh, these forts and palaces were some of these. Uh, you know, African, very prominent African nobles who had maybe come from slavery and become, you know, generals and and uh, kings, basically, uh, where they had built their, you know, kind of realms. Um, to talk about the kind of lack of preservation of these sites, um, almost kind of their, you know, dereliction, mm-hmm. but also that we have this sort of rich visual history but that the physical sites are not being maintained in part because it's really not seen as so um, uh, critical. I mean, because Indian history is so debated, particularly early pre-European Indian history is being so debated right now, it's not seen as valuable. Um, And so it really, uh, I think, was striking to um, think about how... uh, the African presence in India has been, has, has not, um, has largely been remained invisible and in fact kind of absorbed into India in a way that, that, um, those, those people in Delhi who might've said, Oh, look, we, we're a multiracial nation, um, really didn't have much of a claim to make because the multiracialism of, of, of India has not been, primarily its concern, even though it considers itself a democracy. And so there were a lot of interesting conversations. And I think public history is able to do that, where it, it can juxtapose um, very different different um, approaches to a similar question, like the African diaspora, where you have in the United States, and contrasting or comparing with the African diaspora in a country like India, um, this, this, these tensions or the differences in the commemoration of that history. And so I found it really valuable also that to see it in India, but then also to see it here and to be able to see different reactions um, to it. And I think that um, public history has a unique ability to kind of, to generate those kinds of conversations. But I think public history is also especially well done when it's across these international spaces to be able to kind of, and Sylvia, historian Sylvia Andrew should really, should be credited and, um, and Kenneth Robbins for, for putting together that exhibit um, and taking it uh, to so many places. Uh, so, so I do think that um, I, I, tr- I, I, try to emphasize that public history is this kind of, especially public history related to a topic like, like Africans in India or African Indian connections is not, um, cannot be wholly celebratory, right? This exists and this is, this is wonderful, which is how the Indian government tried to use it and portray it, which is that, oh, look, we have this multiracial history, but in fact should generate a more difficult conversation which is, you know, what does race mean in, in, in India? Now that we've kind of gone through the book, I'll just note that, you know, I was struck by the range of topics that you covered. Um, you know, as we've kind of just discussed, uh, your book touches on religion, history of science, artistic expression, politics, and empire. 
Uh, and there's also a great geographic uh, breadth as well. I mean, even though you are sort of focused on West Africa, largely, you know, Southern Africa, East Africa also get brought up. Uh, particularly since I know that some people who listen to this are people kind of in the process of writing their own book. Could you share a little bit about sort of how the project developed um, and your research methods? Feel free to also kind of share if there was information that didn't quite make the final edit um, and kind of how you went about sort of determining the overall structure of the book. Oh, um, as you can imagine, it was really hard, but definitely the beginning place, like we started off was Nigeria and, and, um, it, it really, what I, the questions and the sources that I developed in Nigeria really became the, um, kind of charted the, 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 the process for the research. And so, um, I, I think, traversing a lot of spaces um, and following a lot of leads um, it, when that became you know hard because of finding sources in all these different places I would come back to well what would the what's the local meaning of these wider global um, networks or circuits or uh, commodities that are moving you know from here to there and so um, this is where I I think it's exciting to to merge African history with global history or African history of the global um, is um, exciting because it you don't have to lose sight of you know where you know where the place and where you feel uh, has really inspired the research um, and so I I, I I at moments of confusion or how to structure this what was really um, grounding was to keep remembering how coming back to what had initially started the questions and, and the discoveries that happened in, in Nigeria. Well, Dr. Shankar, we've taken up enough of your time, but before we end, I'd like to ask kind of one more question, which is sort of, what are you kind of working on currently? Well, it is a, <laughs> a more, a closer look at um, Nigeria uh, India networks, which do stretch back um, earlier than many people imagine. If we look at cloth, for example, mm -hmm. so-called Guinea cloth uh, that was circulating in West Africa and was um, moving between West Africa and India, tracing up to more contemporary commodities um, like uh, uh, new kinds of cloth, uh, traditional medicines, Moringa. So I'm really, I'm I, what I want to do is a cultural economic history of uh, these goods that go and sort of telling Nigeria, India's relationship through these different um, commodities or things. Um, and I also am very interested in how people across this vast, you know, in this relationship come to trust these products. So, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, what comes from another place how does one decide its value, the, its creation, the expertise of its you know, producer um, and measure its value? And so um, I want to get at some of these more fundamental questions in um, things and goods and people trading things and goods. Uh, so that's what I'm working on now. And it really does come from one of my other original fascinations in Nigeria, which was markets.
Mm. And all the new goods and old goods that would be in markets, which I'm sure you're familiar with too. Well, it sounds really, really interesting. Uh, you know, as someone who's looked through a lot of Nigerian newspapers, I was always sort of often distracted by the different advertisements for medicines that clearly seemed like they had a kind of South Asian influence, even if it wasn't explicit. So I'm yeah interested to learn more about kind of, yeah, how did they come to be advertised on the pages of newspapers? So yeah, well, thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you. It was fun.